That's all right. Well, those of us that remain, would you join me in the Old Testament minor prophet book, Haggai? And we're going to look together today at the end of chapter 1. The small book only has two chapters, and we're finishing the first chapter today. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And I'm going to read that for you in just a moment. You'll remember that this is between the two Z's in the Minor Prophets, Zephaniah and Zechariah. And I said last week, if that doesn't help, it's on page 772 in my Bible. So uh, if you can't find it that way, maybe you can find it another way. <clears throat> go to Isaiah and begin to go towards the New Testament. All right, this is what the Word of the Lord says. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence or fear for the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. We're making our way series through this small little book in the Old Testament that we're calling Consider Your Ways. And one of the reasons why we've titled it that is it, becomes, it, it comes right out of the text. Last week, in just a few short verses, we saw the Lord command the people of Jerusalem two times, Consider Your Ways. In no less than four places in two chapters, the Lord commands, Consider Your Ways. Many of the Old Testament scholars that have written on Haggai have said, if you can boil down this message, these two chapters, to one thing, essentially, that is it. The Lord is calling His people, who for some time have neglected their ways in a very specific way as it relates to His glory, His house, the temple, and therefore prioritizing His presence, they have neglected considering their ways. and In their heart, Focusing on the right priority, God calls them through the prophet back to this very significant, important task. To set the context here for just a moment, we did this last week, but just remember essentially what's led us to this point in Haggai chapter 1. In the 590s B.C., God sent as an agent of His punishment the nation of Babylon to Jerusalem to punish the children of Israel, to, to punish Judah for their disobedience and neglecting the covenant with their God. And essentially, Babylon reduced Jerusalem just about to rubble, and specifically the temple, and then deported the people of Jerusalem to Babylon. Some 70 years later, as was predicted in the prophet Jeremiah and promised by God, God raises up another nation, Persia, and through a king there, a pagan king there, gives an edict for Jerusalem or, or Judah to begin to return from exile back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the city and the temple. 
This happened in 538 B.C. with Ezra, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. In 536 B.C., they begun, began rebuilding the temple. But as quick as they began rebuilding the temple with the resources that God had provided for them through Persia and Lebanon, they were discouraged because of threats of attack from without, from their enemy, and famine and apathy within, and the temple began to set in ruins. For 16 years, get this picture, get this idea, you have returned from exile, and in your mind, perhaps the most significant edifice building in your nation's history is over there in rubble, and for 16 years, you go about your normal daily activities your normal life, and you walk by those ruins, that rubble, every day. To the point where it almost just simply fades into the background and you almost forget about it. It's almost as if it's a task now that, oh, you'll get to one day, but it becomes very obvious that perhaps it's never going to be accomplished. And then, in 520, through the prophet Haggai, God sends a message to them that it is now time for them to con uh, quit considering only their own livelihood, their own life, their own preferences, their own homes, and begin to take up the task that God had once given them of rebuilding His house. And He accuses them of neglecting the priority of His presence. You understand, the temple was never just about a building. It represented the very presence and blessing of God amongst His people and therefore His glory amongst the nation. And yet they had somehow pushed Him into the background. It's not unlike what we do often. God's still there. We know He's there. Perhaps we put him up on a shelf so we can have him when we need him, which often is only on Sundays when we gather together for an hour. But the rest of the time, he is somewhere in the margins of our life. Well, God gave a definitive rebuke and a very specific message for them that I think still applies to us today. Consider your ways. And so now today we come to asking the question, how is it specifically that we should respond when such a situation as this occurs in our life where God has been marginalized and we've been called on it and we understand from his word we need to repent we need to respond differently how do we do that perhaps we're tempted as was the children of Israel at times to respond the same way that's modeled for us in a movie 1990 movie Joe versus the volcano by the lead character who bears the same name, Joe. And by the way, that was the first movie, unlike Sleepless in Seattle, that most people think that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan starred opposite one another in. In that movie, Joe, who's played by Tom Hanks, is dying, apparently. But from his perspective, it's okay, because he doesn't have much to live for. He lives a very mundane life. He works a dead-end job where he does the same thing every day. And so he wasn't as distraught as you might think when the news from the doctor came that your life is only a few, uh, you only have a few more months to live and your life is going to be over. 
Shortly after that, this mysterious millionaire gave him a way to go out with purpose. He would get to travel the world. As long as at the end of his travels, he threw, threw himself into an active volcano to appease some god or god somewhere that would prevent that volcano from erupting and destroying the people that the millionaire did not want destroyed. And so Tom Hanks sets out on this quest to complete this task that he's been given. Sometimes I think we think about our God like that. Some angry being that's greater than us, which he is, that finds pleasure in bringing pain and disruption, turmoil, and even destruction to his people. And so we think somehow we've got to do something in our own accord and our own power to appease this God. I think the question that we would do well to ask today is, is that how we see the people responding here? And is that the character in which we see God responding? I want to show you the answer to this question really today in what I've called three scenes. The scenes. And the first scene that we see here is specifically that. It is a response to the Word. Listen again to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Let's stop there for just a moment. There's several things, and I'm going to try to move through this really quickly, but there's several things that are significant just in the first part of verse 12 that I've read. And we've not even got to the part that perhaps stands out in your mind. Number one is the relatively quick time frame that we see the people respond to the rebuke of the Lord. Now, you might say, well, how, how do you know it was quick? Well, because we know from what we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 that the, the word came from Haggai, the word of rebuke came from Haggai to the people in the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. Well, if we fast forward to verse 15, we know that this is the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. There's only been roughly 23 days that pass between the first of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 1. We're only talking about three weeks here. And so you might say, well, that's not immediate, immediate obedience. Well, relatively speaking, though, it is, though, right? Because to go from the temple lying in ruin to basically having used up all your resources to build the temple, to having the resources to begin building the temple again in three weeks, they didn't sit around and twiddle, twiddle their thumbs for long. They got to it. There, with, For all intents and purposes was an immediate heart change, recognition of the Lord's authority and His words, and beginning to act on it. I think sometimes as the church, as 21st century Americans, I can say this, about myself. Perhaps this is the situation that you find yourself in. I clearly know what God's Word is saying. I'm having my Bible study. I'm having my quiet time. And I come under conviction of the Holy Spirit of a way that I am not living. I know my life doesn't line up with what God's Word is living. What God's Word is commanding. But often my response is not this of the people that we see in Haggai chapter 1. Often mine is first to pretend as if I don't hear it at all. And then when I do, to try to explain it away. And then when that doesn't work, I try to somehow make excuses for my life to why my situation's different and why this isn't really talking about what I'm doing. 
And usually, only after that process of going through do I come to the point of repentance and turn around and beginning to obey. That is not what we see with God's people. When God's Word hits, when, 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 when God begins to clearly bring a word and conviction to the people, we see within reason almost, almost immediate response to what the Lord had called them to do. That is not insignificant for our purposes today. There also is something to be said about the relationship between the words of Haggai and the commissioning that the Lord had given him and the authority of God himself. It is significant to me that what we see over and over again in the Bible when we hold up this word and we say, is this God's word? And, and hopefully everyone in here gives a resounding yes, it is God's word. There are some things that implicitly we're saying about this when we say that. That it is inspired and therefore authored by God in a way that no other book, no other corpus of writing is, has been, or ever will be. And because of that, it holds an authority from God like nothing else does. Yet at the same time, when we say inspiration, we're understanding that God used human authors to write it. So we have a tendency then to be on the horns of a dilemma where we ask, is it therefore the words of man or the words of God? It's God's words, but it came through human agency. But yet the Bible itself, time and time again, sees no dilemma with that concept of God working through men, having inspired men, and it being precisely and specifically the word He intended. It is also interesting that throughout history, even with Israel, you see them not having a problem with that concept. It is the word of God coming through the agency of man that God has commissioned to bring His word, and they have no problem seeing that as God's authority and God's word for them. And I simply say that to say often again, that's somewhere today, somewhere today, sometimes even in the church, but certainly in society, where we are losing that concept and we're divorcing ourselves from it. That somehow God's Word, who God used men to bring, is still His Word and has His authority. And therefore, when someone, and I'm not saying this to in any way exalt myself, when someone stands behind the sacred desk on a Sunday morning and preaches accurately His Word, it is not the authority of man you're hearing, it's not the words of man you're hearing, but it's the Word from God Himself into our lives with His authority that demands our response. And if we're not careful, we will lose that concept, and that is a concept they had not lost here. There's something else, though, that I did leave out to the end here that I want to come back to. And it's this concept of their response of reverence, or their response of fear. Do you find it significant at all? Do you find it significant at all when the people had neglected the presence of God? When the people had disobeyed God, something from before they knew that, that, that they knew they had been commanded to do, of, of every option and possibility that God had to bring a rebuke from them, the one he chose was sending his prophet with his word. What else could he have done? Well, I guess he could have brought a burning bush. I guess he could have uh, re reinstituted the plagues in Egypt. I guess he could have brought natural disaster. But he simply just brought his word. And the response to that just shows, even though the word's not used, an incredible amount of faith 
on the part of the people. Because it says what they did, they yes, they obeyed, but they also feared, reverenced the Lord. I think in our society, we've tried to make that term, even in the church, We've tried to sterilize this concept of reverence or fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. We'll say something like, well, that's reverential fear. It's not real fear. doesn't mean they were really afraid of God. <laughs> I, I dare to disagree with you. Yes, it led to worship and relationship with Him, but it was absolute fear of Him, knowing who He was, knowing His sovereignty, knowing His power, knowing He knew all and was in control of all. And it was a genuine fear on their part. And I think to some extent there are human relationships that we can make sense of that, but the metaphor breaks down. I, I remember there's a relationship when I was a teenager that I had with my dad that to some extent made sense of that, but then broke down. I remember when I was a teenager and I was 16 years old. I will bore you all the details other than to say I took the car one night and went to a town I wasn't supposed to be in to see a girl that I was dating that I wasn't supposed to see. All would have went well other than the fact that I got a ticket in that town that I wasn't supposed to be in. Uh, maybe you don't know this, but they put the name, the location, the county of where you received the ticket on the ticket. So it's not like you can lie about that and say, well, I was just in town, I got a ticket. The ticket would have been bad enough, but then it exposing me uh, of directly disobeying my dad led to a whole other set of issues. But I was a very intelligent, creative young man. I waited to go home until I knew my dad would be asleep, which was not late. You know, 9, 10 o'clock, my dad would be asleep. I went home, I grabbed the ticket, I grabbed my keys, I grabbed my license, and I wrote this very long apologetic letter, and I left all of those things on the kitchen table for my dad. I'd punished myself. It didn't work. My dad woke me up the next morning at like 5 o'clock with these words, put your pants on, we need to talk. I was walking into that situation with my father, and these were the two major thoughts that were going through my mind. I am scared to death of him, and I'm walking through the kitchen, and I'm looking at the table, but I cannot see my dad anywhere. He's going to come out of nowhere and knock me out. Which led to the second thought I was having, I want to flee. This moment, the place I want to be is as far geographically away from my father as I can get. Now, to some extent, that helps make sense of what we experience when we experience the fear of the Lord. Yes, we, we understand we've been disobedient. We understand that we are right to, He is right to hold us under His wrath and He's capable of doing to us whatever He chooses. And so we are legitimately afraid of the Lord. You know what the biggest difference is? You know where it breaks down? My fear of my dad wanted, caused me to want to get away from him. But the fear of the Lord, even though all of those things are true, it causes me to want to run to Him. Because He's the only one that can remedy the situation I'm in. But make no mistake about it, it is legitimate fear. Do you notice, I don't think it's by accident, when we look at this first scene, the response we see is the people responded immediately and obediently to the Lord's rebuke for ne their neglect of His presence. I I'm reminded, I'm not going to sing this, I'm reminded of an old hymn we used to sing. Perhaps you remember it. When we walk with the Lord... In the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. He abides with us still while we do His good will, and to all who will, 
trust and obey. Trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When that psalm was written, not a whole lot had changed from when the children of Israel had to respond to the same way. And since that song has been written, there's not a whole lot that's been changed as to what we need to do now. Hear His Word, hear His truth, and throw ourselves, knowing the fear of the Lord, upon His grace and mercy, knowing He's the only one that can do us for it, because we can, we can never appease Him, we can never work enough on our own. Now the significant thing for me here, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with their response to the Word. But we see at least two significant actions happen. Perhaps on the Lord's agenda as a result of the people's response to the Word. And we see these in the next two scenes. Verse 13, reassurance from the Word. Listen, that Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying... I am with you, declares the Lord. Perhaps this creates an echo, a remembrance of your mind of a place like Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. Moses has died and Joshua is now the leader of Israel and he's about to finally deliver the long-awaited promise of God after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to enter into the promised land. And as Joshua is getting ready to take up this mantle, this monumental task, there is a promise giving from God. Do not fear, for I am with you. I don't think it's insignificant that now, as they've retaken possession after their exile because of their disobedience, the promise, the reassurance from God is what? I am with you understand in the grand scheme of things in the Old Testament and the Bible, and for the people of God, this is no small promise. This is no small word that they're hearing. This is not insignificant. This is huge. To some extent, the Lord being with His people has been the desire, has been the promise and the desire of people from the beginning throughout the entire Old Testament and even the New Testament. You'll remember Moses getting ready to go and deliver the children of Israel in Exodus 3, and God tells him, don't worry. Why? I'm going to be with you. And then Moses in Numbers 14, 15, and 16, Kadesh Barnea, the children of Israel has been disobedient. God wants to wipe them out. Moses asked to not wipe them out. God said he's going to uh, do that, but uh, doesn't know if he can go with them. And then Moses says, well, if you're not going to go with us, if you won't be with me, don't send me to do this because I don't want to do it if you're not going to be there. And then we see Joshua, we've already referenced in Joshua 1.5. Don't fear, the Lord will be with you. They come back into Jerusalem, the holy city. God says, I am with you. That ends it, doesn't it? No, no, no. The whole issue of Christ isn't one of the significant roles of Christ is that first, God in the flesh is with us. Matthew chapter 1. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And then Jesus, as He's getting ready to leave, says, Do not worry, I will go and I will send what? A helper that will come and I will be with you. He will be with you. God with you. And then the Great Commission, right? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, ends with Jesus saying, And lo, I am with you. 
to the end of the age. It is no small thing amongst the people of God to hear the promise, the reassurance. What we need more than anything is the very presence of God in our life and what He chooses to give them after their obedience to His rebuke is not saying, poof, the temple's rebuilt and there's my glory, but it's Him saying, don't worry, I'll be with you. I also find it interesting again, after the rebuke is given, and all the ways that God could have chosen to give them an assurance. Again, it could have been a lot of things. It could have been a burning bush. It could have been a natural uh, disaster. It could have been the plagues. It could have been a lot of things. But you know what God chose to give them? Watch this. His word through His servant. Tell him He was with them. It's not insignificant. And one of the reasons why I think it's not insignificant is because there, there's a lot of ways that God still works the way He did, but in some ways we sit around and we say things, well, if I'd have been like the children of Israel and I'd seen all the things that God had done, I wouldn't have had any doubts in my faith. Or we say, if I'd have been the apostles, I wouldn't have been like that because I would have seen Jesus in the flesh. But yet there's this constant refrain in God's Word that we have what we need from Him to be with Him and to be in right relationship with Him. And when we see something like Haggai and all the ways that God could have responded, He responds with His Word. Well, guess what you and I still have today? His Word. I don't think that's by accident. John Calvin, who gets in some Baptist circles a lot of bad rap, and maybe in some ways rightfully so, against popular notion, is not really the one that codified what we know today is Calvinistic or Reformed theology. Rather, what Calvin was actually known for, we, we think about his theological system, we, we think about his institutes, which is theolo his theological writing, but Calvin, trust me, would have much rather been simply known as a pastor. A pastor in Geneva who loved and taught the Word. Perhaps that is the hidden contribution of Calvin in history that we don't talk about enough. It's, it's really significant. Calvin was in Geneva, and he was exiled from Geneva, and he was in the middle of a series to the book of the Bible. And he was gone for some time, years even, and he was brought later in his ministry back to Geneva, and he was able to enter back into that pulpit, and guess what he did when he entered back into that pulpit? He picked back up right where he had left off years before and just continued to teach the Word. And he made this statement about the Word of God that I think sometimes we don't understand what a gift we have from God in the fact that we have this and we see this in a place like Haggai chapter 2. Here's what he said. He said, we must not take God's Word and play with it as we would a tennis ball. It is our first order of business to allow it to say what it has said. And what it has said... And the work that God does in our life through it is not insignificant. The final scene in verses 14 through 15, we see re-energized by the Word. Listen again. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. When we read stirred up their spirit, our mind immediately goes to the New Testament. We think about something akin to perhaps the anointing of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. 
Now, I'm not denying that's validity in God's Word, but I don't think this is what this reference is to here. You must remember that the reason they stopped building the temple in the first place was really because of threats from their enemies and because of famine and, and discouragement from within. And so really what God is simply doing here is He's energizing their spirits, their inner man. He's giving them encouragement that only can come from Him to do what? Take up the task that He's given them that to some extent has fallen in disrepair. He's essentially given them the strength to be obedient to Him. Now, I'll go ahead and say this just real quick and, and bear with me. I, I don't even think what we want to make of this is some reference to, therefore, when God's on your side, nothing can stop you from doing anything. Nothing will ever stop you from doing the Lord's work. I, I don't know that that's what's being said here, but I think we can say it like this. Remember, the task that God has put in front of, front of them is what? Rebuilding His house which is a prioritization of His presence and His glory, and they've made the decision that they're going to obey and they're going to do that. So we could say it this way. It is amazing when we make up our mind to obey God's Word, how He comes along beside us and gives us that inner fortitude and strength we need to walk with Him and continue to obey. As we obey the Lord, let me say it this way, the layman's way of saying it, as we obey the Lord, guess what the Lord does? Helps us obey Him. That's what's happening here. The Lord is strengthening them to do what they've made up their mind to do, which is obey what He's called them to do. And again, I don't think it's insignificant that from the beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 1, we're essentially three weeks down the line. Three weeks down the line, and they're taking up the task. They're back at it after, listen, 16 years. I think we can apply this to some extent to the church. I I have a tendency, right, sometimes to see the church do this as it relates to the Great Commission or as it relates to making disciples. Just bear with me on this for a moment. Maybe the particulars, but in general, that's not something we need to pray about. If God's Word has commanded something, we don't have to pray whether or not we should do it. We don't have to go, well, let's wait seven years and see if we should really obey God's Word and really should make disciples. No, we make disciples. God's Word has said it. I think we see this on the part of Israel. They're not sitting around going, hey, God's told us to do this. Let's pray and see if we should really do what God has told us to do. There's almost an immediate response to it. Now, bear with me just really quickly, and then I'm going to move us through the application, and we'll close out this morning. Notice that to some extent, if we were to simplify the problem, they... Failing to recognize the presence of God, neglected the presence of God. Explain what I mean by that. Was God ever really not there? Just because the temple wasn't there, was God really never, was it, was he, was it ever a point where he wasn't with them? The same thing can be said of us. I think sometimes we think it's a feeling, or it's a certain look, or it's a certain song, or it's a certain way someone preaches. But is God ever really not with us? He's there. But what happened is because of they, they attaching God somehow confined to this building, they had begun to live in such a way where he was marginalized, they begun to live like he wasn't there. So neglecting to see his presence, they began to fail to prioritize his presence. And yet, how God, what, what they needed more than anything to begin to prioritize his presence again was to know that he was with them. 
So do you know how God chose, again, I'm not trying to make too much of this, but I don't want you to miss this, of all the ways that God could have chosen to give them a reassurance of His presence so that they would begin to fix the problem of not knowing He was there and prioritizing His presence was an encouragement that He was with them through His Word. We don't have to wait for that. We have the promise from God's Word in Christ because of His finished work and the redemption that we, rejoy, we enjoy through faith in Him alone, that He's with us. But yet I think we can do the same things. We can marginalize. And it's not that He's never, ever completely not there. We just push Him to the shadows. So we're back to the original question. What do we do when we're, when we're confronted with this truth, perhaps, that we've pushed Christ to the margins? We've marginalized, we've pushed Christ to the shadows of our life and through His Word, it becomes obvious either as an individual or a church that we've done that. So glad that you've asked that question. I I think we can make the application and then see the results here very quickly. The applications. Hear me. When we are confronted with God's Word, how must we respond? When we realize we've marginalized Christ, How are we commanded to respond? Well, here it is. We must respond immediately and obediently to the Word of the Lord that we have with us. Now, I I think just very quickly, what, and we see that in verse 12. I'm not going to go back in this. We've seen this throughout. When we do that, what is some of the fruit? What are some of the signs that we see in our life that shows us that we indeed are responding to the Lord correctly. Four very, very quickly. These aren't blanket promises, but I think we see them in the life of uh, the, the, the remnant from Jerusalem, and I think we see them in our lives today as well. The Lord gives us these things too. Number one, or B on your sheet, a corrected perspective. Remember in the second part of verse 12, what did it say the people did after they responded in faith and obedience to His Word? They feared, showed reverence to the Lord. It's to some extent, the problem is fixed there. What's keeping us from prioritizing Christ in our life? Well, probably in some shape, form, fashion, whether knowing it or not, because it happens so subtly, we have put ourselves on the throne of our own life. And just simply in that repentance and returning and saying, Christ, I repent, it's amazing how that perspective is immediately fixed just in that. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that needs to be done is done, but immediately Christ goes back on the throne and we have this corrected perspective. And that goes a long way to show that we are responding to the Lord in the right way. Number two, or C, a recognized presence. The Lord gives them this promise. He says to them, I, through his, his, his servant Haggai, I am with you. I will be with you. And again, this just goes to this idea, was the Lord ever not with them? He was with them. It's just they weren't recognizing. Is the Lord ever not with you? Obviously, you can be in disobedience. Your life cannot be lining up. You can have barriers. But can you go? David answered this question. Can you go anywhere where the Lord is not? And by the way, from the perspective of the Word, can we? is there any time in our life where we cease to be saved? No, it's just simply a recognizing of His presence with us. And often hearing that promise anew from His Word will help us when we've responded to His Word this way. D, 
the Lord's provision. We see where he said here, it, it, he stirred their spirit. And again, I, I don't want to go into this all over again, but I, I don't think what we're seeing here is this promise of, yeah, then therefore everything, if you're, if you're obedient to the Lord, everything you accomplish for him will turn into gold. You'll, you're, you'll, your life will be successful in every way the world sees success. It's not what I'm talking about here, and I don't think that's what we see here, but there is something to be said. Look, when I respond in faith and obedience, when I respond immediately the way I'm supposed to to the Lord, it's amazing how the Lord gives provision in my life. The more I want Him, the more He helps me to want Him. The more I obey Him, the more He helps me desire to obey Him. I remember when I was a, a teenager and really had just begun to be discipled. I had read the Bible. I had sat down and studied the Bible at periodic intermediate times before, but it's almost like every time it appeared like I was reading it upside down. But when I began to be discipled, and my life began to not perfectly, but, but, but go in line with Christ, it's almost like the Holy Spirit grabbed the Bible and did like this. And when it began to make sense to me, I couldn't get enough of it. It was the Lord's provision as I sought Him to help me continue to find Him. And then finally, the renewed priority. Again, we see this by them doing what they should have done 16 years before, and that's taking up and building the temple. It's amazing, again, when our life, when we repent and we truly put Christ back on the throne of our life, how then all of a sudden the things that we're called to do as believers, that <coughs> I'm not talking about the specific way we do them, I'm talking about the things that aren't negotiable, the things that just we do as Christians. The Bible is clear on. It's amazing how those things begin to come back into priority in our lives. And it's perpetual. As I read the Word, I'm closer to Christ. As I'm closer to Christ, I want to read the Word more. As I read the Word more, and I'm closer to Christ. I want to tell others about Him, and I want to be involved in the church, and I want to worship Him, and I want to disciple people, and I want to be involved in events. It's just, it's just amazing how that reorganization of those priorities begin to fall in place. If those things become the end in themselves, usually those, those things stay out of kilter. But when the priority is Christ, it's amazing how everything under that falls into place. Now, just bear with me for a moment. If I had to summarize even more succinctly, how do we know when it is that we've responded appropriately the signs and fruit that we've responded appropriately to the Word of God in our life. I, I'm trying to simple, simplify it, but, but here's what happens. If you look at all of these and you look at the response of the people in Haggai, it's amazing. When I respond to the Lord, here's what we see in our lives. Here's what we see in their life. When you're in obedience to the Lord, the more you find yourself wanting the Christ of the Word and the Word of Christ. Because it's in the Word of Christ that we experience and draw near to the Christ of the Word. And it's just amazing. I, I don't want to go too far with this, but just an application. Here's what typically happens, and I don't think it's far-fetched to see what happened in their life. If, it, if at any point in your life, if there's one thing that God through His Word ceases to be the authority on, guess what's soon to follow? God through His Word being the authority on anything. But when all of a sudden God through His Word is, is the authority, 
It's amazing how all of those other things fade into the background. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves at peace just saying, either it is God's Word or it's not, and either God is my authority or He's not. And when He is, these priorities begin to come back in shape. And we draw near to Him and we prioritize His presence the way we're called to. Another great preacher of the past, Charles Spurgeon, said this about the Word of God. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. You know, I think we do well if we start desiring to prioritize Christ and we see it even here. The way we do that is we prioritize His Word. The way we come back to Christ is we come back to obedience to His Word. The way we ultimately, in our midst, glorify Christ is we place His Word at the center because that always takes us to Christ. And in our individual lives, here's, here's what that means. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible is clear of how and in what way His Word needs to lay a hold of you. We know that ultimately, we talked about this earlier, Jesus went to the cross and He died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was put in a tomb and three days later He rose again, victorious, defeating sin and death once and for all for you. And we have the promise of anyone, anyone, anyone who repents and places saving faith in Christ alone also has the promise of eternal life and overcoming sin and death. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you let Christ through His Word lay a hold of you that way this morning? If you're here today and you are a believer, it's so easy, isn't it, to push Christ to the margins. And when we do that, we, we, we almost wander in the dark, wondering, what do I need to do to fix this? Well, the good news, bad news, kind of a good news, bad news situation, you can't fix it. Christ has already done everything, even for the believer that needs to be to, to put us in a right, right relationship and fellowship and it's just simply letting Him be who He is back on the throne of our life, and He brings all of this fruit and all of these signs and all these priorities back in order. Those priorities aren't how we do it. It's just seeing that we... It's just the, the evidence that we are doing it. If you've pushed Christ to the margins of your life, can I invite you to come today and allow the Word of Christ to re-grip your soul and your heart like that once again today? I'm going to pray when I say Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to begin to sing. Will's going to lead us. And would you respond today as the Lord is quickening and calling your heart, your soul. Gracious Father, thank you so much from this clear teaching from your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Father has application for the person that doesn't know you and it beckons and it calls to come and be reconciled to God through Christ. And it also has application for the believer who needs every day to continue to walk with Christ. Father, this is your invitation. You have your way. And we'll give you all the praise, honor, and glory for it's about you. It's not about us. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we give you this time. And we say, move. Move, Holy Spirit, move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you respond as we sing this morning?